everyone. This is season five of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. Camila officially just had to tell us what season we were on because we're now doing seasons again. <laughs> yeah, update. We did season releases for a while and we like, I think we dumped them all at once. Then we went to COVID protocols so, and just tried to keep releasing episode after episode for season four. And then our downloads went down, so... <laughs> Well, it didn't go down. It just, it was getting really hard to schedule. And so then we decided to do batches again. Batches. 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 <laughs> um, sorry. So for this season, we decided we're going to try to, try to, if you're familiar with our podcast, you know that this is not going to be successful, but we are trying. There is no do. There is only try. <laughs> we're going to try to stick to a theme, a loose theme. And that is, we are going to talk about new gun owners and how all of the new gun owners in, you know, American, I almost said American history. I almost went in full historian mode. Um, I mean, ostensibly, <laughs> we are historians. As historians. As historians. We're going to look at today's culture and analyze it from a historical perspective. <laughs> We're going to look at today's culture and wildly and inaccurately apply it to the past presentism <laughs> but we're also going to look at the idea of new gun owners today who were who were owning firearms in the past we're also going to look at gun collecting in the 21st century how we can interpret this you know the role of online kind of history personalities and basically the 21st century 2021 post-apocalyptic analysis of the state of gun ownership in our culture and where we can go with that as historians. Yeah. And we settled on this theme because we both think we're at a really interesting snapshot or time point in the history of firearms ownership. Um, there's been a lot in the news, which we'll get into. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like a moment to explore the topic and again, wildly speculate about what the future holds for this topic and some of the others <laughs> later in the season. Um, and if you are only just tuning in or stuck around after Ian's episode and have continued to tune in, tune in but never listened to our back catalog of episodes, you'll know that we will start down this road and then go on lots and lots of tangents. So we'll see how it goes. So we kept it loose enough that like maybe it's not as noticeable. Maybe. Maybe. So for the season premiere, we are going to talk about – we're going to basically tee up this season. So we're going right. to talk about – New gun owners, who are they? How do they feel? And then we're going to talk about, you know, is this really new, all the different types right. of people who are own fi owning firearms? Or is this something that's been around for a really long time? So do you want to start? Sure. So I alluded to the this moment in history, for lack of a better phrase, even though it's kind of a terrible one. And obviously the, the context here that's ongoing is the millions and millions of new gun owners within the last year um, a little over a year now. So various sources, most, most of the news stories I'm seeing on this are using the NSSF numbers for new gun owners and gun sales for 2020 were somewhere over somewhere North of 20 million sales as recorded by Nick's checks. And of that, the estimates of how many of those are new gun owners range anywhere from like 20 to 30 to you know, 50%. I think the NSSF number is 40%. And that's generally based on interviews with like gun store owners and who's coming in. And if that number is accurate, then something like 8 million, maybe a little bit more of gun buyers last time were new gun owners. So that's sort of the context we're in. 
Yeah, and I I think the estimate, which I I don't even know how this figure comes to be, but I think the estimate is that there's about, well, before all this, there were about 100 million gun owners in the United States. Depending on who you believe, the estimates range from like, yeah, like 25 to 40 or 50 percent of the country. Yeah. Well, and so the other part of this is not just new gun owners. It's the fact that the media very much, and not just the media, but like everybody, the gun community, um, are focusing on the fact that these quote-unquote new gun owners are, oh, I guess they're just new gun owners. There's no quotes there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not quoted, just new. These new gun owners are ranging in different demographics of people who are perceived to not have owned firearms in the past. So there right. are, it's not just old effing white guys, which is, uh, it's an expression, OFWGs. Yeah, that's an expression. And I didn't say the word, so I feel like I'm already off to a better start this season. But, um, so, you know, everyone's always thought, you know, and, and not un- inaccurately, but like that gun owners were mostly just like old white guys, uh, FUDs, if you will, people that like their, you know, hunting gun and, you know, NRA memberships and everything. And so now that there are organizations like the Liberal Gun Club and the Socialist Rifle Association and Black Guns Matter and the Pink Pistols and, you know, all kinds of offshoots um, of different types of, quote unquote, non-traditional gun owners. Um, and, and we've seen a rise in those people uh, owning firearms in the past couple of years. And so... It's been getting a lot of attention from everyone, really. And the the topic that we kind of wanted to dive into today is the fact that, like, is are they really non-traditional? Right. Or are they just, you know, gun owners that, you know, have and have not had firearms throughout their histories? Right. Um, and really the only time they haven't had firearms because, you know, we regulated them to not have them. So part of this, everybody's focusing on these minority and sort of non-traditional gun owners. Um, women. I, for, I forgot to say women. <laughs> women. Um, that doesn't help when I just blurred out the word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it does not make me sound any more relevant to the conversation. Maybe ladies. Hey, ladies. Uh. Um, but people are focusing on these supposed, alleged, we'll say, non-traditional That's where the quotes groups. came in. <laughs> That's where the quotes are. And it's not it, – I mean, that kind of buys into a narrative that has built up. There is, I think, some truth to it. But it's it's also buying into a narrative that they've also, like, never owned guns before, which is also not true. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, and the if you are someone that's listened to our podcast, you know that we've done several episodes on uh, racism and classism and nepotism with firearms legislation and firearms laws in Europe and in America. And so, you know, a lot of times these people, these people, that sounds bad. <laughs> Quotes. <laughs> The, uh, a lot of times there are people that want to own firearms and they were legally banned from doing right. so. So over in Europe and a lot of countries, you know, for a while, you if you were only allowed to own a gun if you were friends of, you know, nobility or the crown. Um, and so it was really hard to get a hunting license. And they took it very seriously. If you didn't have a hunting license and you were caught on property, which in some countries was considered the king's land without a hunting license, you could be sentenced to death. I mean, they took it very, very seriously. And by the 1600s in Europe, almost in America, but not yet. 
Not yet. Almost. Almost. Uh, in 1600s in Europe, there was an emerging middle class uh, that started owning firearms a lot more regularly. And there were these people would collect hundreds of firearms in their collection during their lifetime. And it's fascinating because it's like <laughs> you don't have mass manufacturers. So you've got all these individual firearms. So I think there was a probate inventory in the 17, I think 1724 of somebody who died and he had like 238 firearms. What did collectors do? This is a total sidebar. What did collectors do back? Because there's like cult collectors now, right? And they're like, all right, I need every variation of single action army. What's the collector back? He's like, I have my favorite gunsmith. I'm going to collect one of everything he makes. Actually, probably. I would imagine. Like, what does that look like? Well, I mean, it looks like whatever you want because you commissioned the pieces. Oh, yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, early collecting uh, was very much, uh, I think it was oriented around military and then anomalies. So a lot of people bought mm-hmm. things that like they thought were like, you know, very advanced technology, like uh, which king was it? Louis the 15th? 13. 13? Well, one of the kings. Uh, I mean, that's what he collected was gas sealed guns, breech loading guns, things that weren't necessarily like the norm, quote unquote. Right. Um, and then a lot of people, they collected militaria and then I guess that never changed. And then there were people, they would commission their own pieces and they would be a part of that and they would display them. Uh, Kunstkammers. Cool. <laughs> they would display them and then they would show people and it was a point of pride and um, this is not the gun collector episode but that's right. tangents here Tangent. we are but okay so Europe middle class starts acquiring firearms and then people start coming over into the United States and I guess maybe that probably plays a lot into the type of people that were coming over here if the middle class was owning firearms more and more I never really thought about it like that right. how was the middle class owning guns all of a sudden uh, that's a good question I don't know <laughs> Well, I mean, we're not economic historians, but they could finally afford it. And uh, guns were finally common enough. And And it wasn't against the law anymore? Um, you know, honestly, I don't recall most. Of, like, I, I know some of the laws that were there early on, but um, I think it's the emergence of the middle class in and of itself is a change in the governmental, you know, structure of a lot of countries. Um, so the fact that you can have a middle class, you know, in, in those countries, and so I don't know. I actually now for our gun collecting, gun collecting uh, episode, I'll, I'll look into it because I don't know if the laws changed. I think you know the laws probably changed in general in society, which would have opened the ability. For for more and more people to own firearms. And with the middle class, there's, you know, to some extent, some disposable income for that. And they were actually using them for, you know, hunting purposes. And, you know, a lot of people were target shooters, but that's its own cost. And probably what we're really referring to here is like a still upper middle class. Not like, you know, because there's like distinctions today. There's maybe these are totally made up, but there's like the quote unquote lower middle class and the upper I grew up at a high school where they called us the cake eaters. Marie Antoinette let them eat cake. Um, and I once got, oh God, this is going to sound so bad. Uh, my boyfriend at the time, my high school boyfriend, I, and I got into a really heated fight because he called my family lower middle class. <laughs> See, I used to think of myself as growing up lower middle class. I think we just grew up poor. <laughs> <laughs> That's, this is the most like white person thing I think that, like really possibly have been said, right? But you know what I'm talking about. Like there are... Everybody talks oh, there, about yeah, this. there's distinctions, but we're we're getting beyond the point. Do you think that merchants of Venice were like, <laughs> I'm upper middle class, you're lower? Middle Actually, class. probably. I feel like I met, any, I, they were probably yeah. super 
I feel like if any it. group in society like would be pointing that out, it would be earlier. In yeah, there would be history. a lot of stratification. Oh yeah, yeah. Ours is just like two levels. Yeah, we just it's it. There's nothing else. No, that's messed up, and I not say that. Um, no, so okay, so when you come over into America, a lot of people are owning firearms and bringing them from overseas, and in the colonies, uh, you get some of the earliest restrictive legislative laws. Yeah, um, there are, but there's also this. There's like a window of opportunity yeah. almost because an, a pretty good example of this, if you want to learn a little more about this, I would suggest the book called Thundersticks, which is about how Native Americans adopted firearms. And when firearms first arrive with settlers, it's a huge in-demand trade op, uh, uh, trade item. And the author of that book, I can't remember his name right now, but he makes a case like that their adoption was very quick and like almost revolutionary. Um, so tribes adopted them and then it was a quest among the tribes to adopt them faster than their neighbors to gain essentially a, a hunting and tactical advantage. And they recognized that very early. So it's this really interesting, you know, storyline or, you know, historical topic that he explores about how widely Native Americans adopted firearms. But then as they get in conflict with European settlers, then the laws start to change. And then it's, if you trade with them outside of like our government sanctioned trades, like you get the death penalty. Yeah. If you trade with them, but we can do whatever we want because we're the government. Right. Yeah. That's like, it's this weird thing is like, sometimes we need to trade with them, but if you do it, you're going to die. And we're going to be able to tell which one's which. Right. You know? Yeah. And <laughs> Where they exactly got that firearm. Right. Well, and the other thing, too, in the military shoulder arms book that we were just looking at, um, they broke down gun ownership in one of the colonies. They broke it down between men and women as well. Like they, right. you know, and so that was interesting to me to know that even back then, uh, one, I mean, you can always assume that women are owning firearms. Um, and there are firearms clearly like that have survived throughout history that are older that have been made for for women. And right. Catherine the Great was a big huntress. But um, when you look back at uh, the colonies, you know, you don't necessarily think like we're going to take into account the fact that we're you know tallying up guns owned by men and women. You would think it would just be men, um, right? Yeah, and that's I think that's where one of those first sort of hurdles to overcome is like. The perception is today that in the past it was only white men that owned firearms. But clearly in even colonial days, local tallies of firearms included women. So maybe it's not a majority or like a huge number, but it's it's there. And I think that's important to understand because history is never as – history is never as – You don't want to say it, do you? What? Nothing. <laughs> History's never as one-sided. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> history is never as black and white. Thanks for the cue card. <laughs> That's not what I was thinking of, actually, but appropriate. History is never as black and white as we want it to be, right? Like when you try to use history on your side of an argument, it might help it, but it's never a hundred percent because there's just too much going on. And so when you get this perception in present day that like only gun the only gun owners in the colonies were white males that had been enlisted for the militia or whatever when that was actually um do you think that the actual militia acts that after the second amendment that basically you know required gun ownership for a class of people do you think that that might be 
where some people pull that misconception from? That probably is. But I also think we misunderstand. I've, I've read a few cases for like what is actually because that's a big part of the Second Amendment debate is what is <laughs> what the, was it? The Second Amendment debate. <laughs> I don't know what I said. <laughs> I don't know either, but it was great. And I wish. Well, I'll listen to it back because I want to use it every time I say Second Amendment. The Second Amendment debate is what is the militia because that's part of the clause of the text of the document. So that's a whole part of the debate. And there's a pretty compelling article I read not that long ago that essentially was, we don't really understand militia in the same way today. And the time they probably understood it to mean basically everybody. Um, Everybody or money. Everybody. Everybody except. Everybody except. Um, So yeah, that's another (laughs) tangent. We don't need to go down that road, but it gets, it gets into this idea that I think it was broader in scope then we recognize and we've come to view it in this very narrow lens of like landed white males. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't help when there are laws being passed that specifically say like free blacks and natives can't own fire. Right. Because then we get into that. <laughs> so the point I was making with that no, is I know, like, I know, there I is clearly not just male ownership. There's like we have evidence from the period that there is female ownership. Yeah. We also have early evidence like that they were constantly fighting against native ownership. So that must imply there was native ownership going on. And we know, you know, and we can see that in the historical record that whenever they had the chance, Native Americans like eagerly adopted these firearms. So then the other, you know, big question mark is as, um, as slavery arises in the colonies, there are both enslaved and free blacks. And what does their ownership picture look like? Um, and that's a complicated one too, because there's laws like some laws sort of allow, like with permission, enslaved people to carry firearms, and other laws are like, nope, not even a little. Well, and I think there was something during the revolution as well that kind of opened that door for um, enslaved peoples to own firearms. But you also you feel like it continues to come back to the concept of like when it's convenient for the government, right? <laughs> when it's convenient for them, we'll we'll let them and. There's always this push to sort of democratize it, whether it is, you know, an emerging middle class owning guns and then the nobility being like, wait, we're not sure we're okay with this. Or it's like, oh, we encountered this new people group. They want guns too. Oh, wait, we're not okay with that one either. Yeah. And it's like this continual. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because when you look at that kind of like mental struggle of when the government decides it's cool and when they don't. Uh, You know, look at the South, because when you look at leading up to the Civil War, there's a lot of laws that'll say, okay, and and these are in individual states, but it'll say, okay, free blacks can own firearms. And then it'll be like, JK, two years later, and not only can they not own firearms, we are going to search and seizure their homes. And like, get these firearms you know and it's weird you see it a lot so like it's fascinating how that kind of keeps going back and forth and back and forth um and and, you know and the native and and kind of black narratives are you know ones that are probably the most prevalent um in early history because it gets literally they get mentioned you know in the law so it's not like you know they're just they're being passive aggressive about it they're being very direct and it's it's interesting to me as well that Sometimes we're also talking about like certain classes of firearms. So, you know, now nowadays we get zeroed in on all the various technical detail, overall length and caliber, all that stuff. Um, but back then it was like these broad classifications, like offensive or defensive, or like they would list guns 
and like knives, daggers, this, this, and that. like yeah. it was like a weird groupings of things that they would put together. So that raises the question to me: it was like, okay, so that does that mean this flintlock pistol that I can hide my pockets not kosher, but this you know double barrel shotgun is? Yeah, and once you go to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, you do where they basically outlaw the you know the South's ability to you know be pretty direct. Right. <laughs> they end up it becomes you know classist if it ever was not classist you know right. to some extent as well, and that kind of continues into the you know 20th century and um, you know but the the role of firearms to the black community were so important. Uh, when you look at like Ida B. Wells, I mean, there's that famous Ida B. Wells quote. I mean, it was significant in the 19th century um, for so many people to own firearms. But that's just not it's not talked about. And it's probably not right. talked about because it wasn't allowed, you know, right. in certain states for a long time. But that just because it wasn't allowed, I think it's the part of the problem. <laughs> and I mean, you you said it there is like with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, like Essentially, the South is outlawed for being overtly. They have to get clever about it, so they're Covertly. like, so they're like, all right, um, poor people can't own guns. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> they don't say poor people. They do it even more passive aggressive. They're like, okay, so everyone can just have Army Navy models. It's right. totally accidental that they're like expensive. Yeah, and it's it's a subversive way around that to exclude firearms ownership for. African Americans, which logically must mean that that's a thing that needs to be, in, at least in their minds, restricted, right? Because if it's not happening, then why make it a rule? Yeah. So it happens, they make a rule about it to restrict it, and it shows in some sort of, you know, upside down world way that that was a um, a tool important to the community. Yeah. Well, and it's not just, I mean, we're talking a lot about old history to show and highlight that, you know, gun owners have not always been just all white guys, you know, as people perceive. But at the same time, you know, if you jump into the 20th century, you get a lot of other demographics owning firearms that, like, I think today people would assume aren't connected um, with that community. And, and, you know, I don't, unfortunately, I should have prepped better, but I, because I don't know much about that. Oh, Camila's shaking her head. She's disappointed. Well... Fine. Okay, you're right. Um, but, you know, when you look at, like, right now with uh, <laughs> Top Shot Chris Chang, his name's Chris. Like, I don't know why. Like, I'm friends with him. I don't know why I said that. But um, Chris Chang has been speaking out a lot um, since the mass shooting uh, that recently occurred uh, about, you know, Asian Americans arming themselves. And that was a really big part of, was it the L.A. riots? Yes. Uh, where they call them the rooftop Koreans, which I'm sure is probably not okay now. But it, I mean, it was true. It was a lot like people's businesses were being destroyed. And so these people went up onto their roofs and they guarded their, their businesses. And so, it, you know, you, you see a lot of those um, organizations popping up now because I think Chris just created an Asian American gun rights org. Right. Um, I'm totally blanking on the name. I'm Sorry, Chris. Blanking on the name. Sorry, Chris. But so, like, these organizations are popping up now. Um, but it's, you know, I, I wish I would have known a little bit more of the kind of Asian American firearms history. But I know that, you know, by the latter half of the 20th century, it was very much, you know, a part of part of their culture, at least. Right. And so, you know, that is all sort of the long way around of establishing that this has never been. It's certainly, I think you make the case that 
firearms ownership is predominantly, you know, one group in, you know, certain time periods in American history. Um, that's there. But to me, it's not a sudden emergence. Like there has always been this, um, there's always been something in these different communities there. And like now, you know, for a culmination or a combination of reasons, um, culmination is not the right word at all. But for a combination of reasons, a lot of people have sought firearms ownership in the last year. And it, a lot of that sort of under the radar stuff then gets to the surface because just of the volume of new gun owners. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about different uh, genders, different races, uh, people of color owning firearms and the regulations that have kind of stopped that and allowed that over the years. Uh, but we also I think we should talk a little bit about ideology because there is a there is yes. a great perception amongst both the gun community and outside the gun community that owning a firearm is a Republican right. Yes. That's it. We're done. <laughs> that, that's it. That's the same. Yeah, that's the the perception is that it is a conservative. I mean, if we're talking about the perception as a whole, it was that we're trying to debunk here is that it was a conservative white male is who owned firearms. Yeah. And if we're going to address the white male part, we also have to address the conservative Republican part. Yeah. And I mean, you could technically I'm going to say this, but then let's gloss over it because it is I'm not getting into that debate about Southern Democrats, but and blue dog Democrats. But, you know, theoretically, the, the gun owners, the biggest gun owners, you know, were Southern Democrats, you know, leading up into the Civil War. And so that was a huge part of the demographic. But I know that. <laughs> Sorry, I had to sniff weird. We need to take that out. <laughs> no, it's stated. I just wish everyone could have seen the look on his face. That was what was weird. <laughs> like I said, Southern, I said Southern Democrats, and you looked at me snarled. Like, like, because I know you're like you're Southern, so I didn't know like by your definition, I'm Southern. By a lot of people, I'm not. Yeah, that's true. Um, but you know, so, but so I have two votes for Southern in here, but you're both Northerners. Yeah, we're Yankees. Anyone south of Virginia would not call me Southern. Anyways, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because that's the nuance of like what the party was then, if it's the right. same as it is now. Um, but the other part of that, and I wrote an article about this where I kind of messed around with the idea of liberalism and firearms because, you know, many of the founding fathers were the classic or social liberals and the Second Amendment was written by them. So, you know, is there liberal ideology in the Second Amendment? Right. Um, but, you know, that comes into this concept of other ideologies owning firearms and the fact that it was really common for people. Like, nobody, like, the political parties weren't exactly divided like that. Um, you know, they, they very much became, well, Democrats did introduce the NFA. But at the same time, you know, it's a post-World War II period where I feel like it starts to really separate but then at the same time there are armed fe liberal feminists and leftist activists that are arming themselves like super radicalized groups um, that are arming themselves and then not you know radicalized groups uh people in the civil rights movement uh it's part of the feminist movement was super radical in part you know was only like a little radical um <laughs> uh, you know so you see that like this idea that a gun being owned by someone is a political right almost it's just not where it's at there starts to be conversations about violence and you know what we need to do about violence especially in the post-world war ii period and a lot of that conversation is led by 
academic historians um, talking about gun people analyzing quote unquote gun culture. But, you know, this concept that like only Republicans or not even just Republicans, but super conservatives can own firearms or want to own firearms, I think has been a product of both the media and the gun community because the gun community does it all the time. And I'm like, but why? That's it. But why? <laughs> but why? I, I also think there's a really interesting generational aspect that doesn't I've seen a few people talk about it, so I don't want to claim like sole credit for this thought, but um, it doesn't get talked about a lot. And I think that to an extent, like Gen X and millennials, because of the media we grew up on, and I'm not talking about the news media, I'm talking like popular culture, TV shows, that kind of thing. When there's finally, there was like, you know, I was talking about that sort of latent ownership history among different groups, but there's also this sort of latent like interest level so that a lot of people in the past year that maybe maybe really like action movies or maybe they really um i'll catch flack for this probably saying it like this but maybe they like certain genres of video games and they have a latent interest in guns because of that and then there's pressure that wasn't there before with everything that happened in 2020 and all of a sudden like that's enough to make the click from I just have sort of a passive interest in this and I kind of like it when I see like a cool gun in a movie to like, you know what? Maybe it's time. like there's a generational aspect here as well, I think. Yeah. And so so to conclude. To, in conclusion. In conclusion. Uh, you know, we wanted to tee off with this episode because we did want to talk about the fact that this idea that uh, fire o- firearms ownership is owned by a specific group of people is just... It's kind of that has... If it ever it's was true, yeah. it's been mostly like wrecked over the last year. Yeah. And so for the rest of the, you know, episodes within the season, we're going to dive into other concepts within this, like I said earlier, you know, but I think the the thing that is the most important to me, especially as we go through this season, is I was asked in an interview, like, what's my advice to, or what's the thing that I want to see the most with all the new gun owners in the country? And my answer was that they not get scared off by old gun owners. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. The instant you said that, I had the picture of like, because I've been in this situation, and I just had to power through it was like you go to a range and there's like some range like brass nazi or something you know what i'm talking about like there's just like some person at the range you're just there to shoot have a good time and they want to police how you do safety or how you you know take care of your guns or they just want to come be in your space a bunch and it's like especially as an introverted person it's It's always too much (laughs) So, like, that's the mental picture I instantly had. Well, and it's, I mean, but it's accurate, you know, and it's it's even just as large as, like, you know, people want to see examples of themselves, you know, in the people that are advocating for firearms or, you know, teaching self-defense. And it's it's very disconcerting if you are someone who wants to own a firearm for whatever reason, and then you, like, are trying to watch, like, influencers, which actually will be an episode, um, you know, watching influencers, and then all of a sudden you're like, wait, I don't, like, you know, being a gun owner means I have to be conservative and I have to be, right. you know, pro-life or I have to, like, I have to line up to all of these specific ideals in order to fit in with the gun community. And while those may be the loudest voices, they certainly aren't the only people there. And so we need, and I think we're getting far better representation across the board as well, but I think we, you know, we could do better about it because, 
you know, being a firearms owner doesn't need to be political. It's your personal reasons and you don't need to believe anything else, you know, other than what you want to believe. Just because you own a firearm does not mean you have to change your entire everything to become only identify as a firearms owner. So I have two questions that I would like to answer in other episodes this season. Okay. I thought you were going to ask yourself questions and then just like answer them. And I was like, well, this is... This is weird. (laughs) This is weird. I mean, let's be honest. It wouldn't be the first time. Also, I would like to point out that you are going to ask these two questions. We are going to walk away from here and we are going to forget and we're not going to answer them. No, I have them written down. Where? Somewhere. On a post-it on your computer? No, it's on my computer right now. That's... The screen's dark. Ignore that. Okay. All right. What are the questions, Danny? All right. So will any new gun owners of the eight or so million become gun collectors? Or I guess I should say a significant percentage of them. And will any of those eight million come visit our museum? Oh, I'm sure that a lot of the new No, gun no. Owners... We got to answer later. Oh. <laughs> can't say All sure right. now. Then we can't do an episode about it later. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed the beginning of this season. If not, it's just going to be more of this. So maybe stop listening. Don't stop. (laughs) That's terrible advice. Don't stop. Keep listening to us. We're very interesting. Can't stop the signal. See (laughs) y'all. Next week on History Unloaded, we're going to talk about gun collecting in the 21st century and whether or not new gun owners even want to hear about that. Make sure to check it out on all your favorite podcast platforms.